Uh, But we are going to be looking at chapter 11. Mike read the passage for us. Uh, No doubt a difficult passage. And what I want us to see this morning as we begin is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to bring glory to God individually as people, as individuals, and we're also to bring glory to God as a church body or corporately. We bring glory to God both individually and corporately, and in chapters 11 to 14, Paul begins to present Issues of difficulty in the life of the Corinthian church where God's glory was being diminished. These were corporate issues dealing with life within the local church. The first half of chapter 11 deals with how men and women or husbands and wives were to reflect God's relational design in the local church. In verse 2 of of chapter 11, Paul indicates that most in the church were following the instructions, the teachings that had been handed down to them regarding how men and women were to present themselves in the church. But there was some seeds of conflict regarding this issue of, of head coverings on women. And in this passage, we are going to continue to look at this issue of head coverings and Paul's instructions regarding their use in the the Corinthian church, but we are going to, in looking at this issue, we are going to really be focusing on the larger teaching that Paul has in mind regarding God's intent for men and women and their function in the local church. So as I stated last week, uh, the way we're approaching this, this, uh, this passage is we are looking at three key truths regarding men and women. We talked about the first truth in verses 2 to 6 last week. Uh, truth number one was that God has designed distinct roles for men and women. This is found in verses 2 to 6 of our text. And I'm not going to re-preach or reteach this passage, but I do want to kind of dust the cobwebs off of our mind. Verse 2 shows us that if we are going to see and to value that God has designed distinct roles for men and women, verse 2 shows us that we have to hold firmly to Scripture. Paul commends the church. He's being very gracious here. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul begins by commending the church in this area. That there was teaching that had been given to the church and given to Christians in general in this first century time. And the majority of the church was holding these true If we are going to find our value system, if we are going to follow truth, we are going to have to find it in Scripture. Not the newspaper, not self-help books, uh, not what other people say, but we are going to have to find it in Scripture. And man, that sure is true when 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 it comes to issues such as we are looking at today. And then in verse 3, Paul Paul shows us as well that if we are going to see and to value the distinct roles that God has given to men and women, we have to see that Scripture gives us a theological or relational framework in which we live. In verse 3, Paul gives three main relationships. Man and Christ, the wife and the husband, And then Christ and God. Verse 3 says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
That Remember that word head, it has the idea of, of authority and representation. And notice that each of these relationships involves submission and faithfulness. You see, many times we focus in on relationship number two as if that is the only relationship that involves submission. And we know from passages like Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We talked about that passage two weeks ago. But there is submission in each of these three relationships. The man here has to realize that his head, his authority is Christ. Man is to submit to Christ. We see that woman is to submit to man. And, and as we talked about last week, and we'll continue to talk about, Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There is a godly submission uh, that this passage is talking about, not a submission that is an ungodly submission. That because my husband says whatever it is, and it could be something of sin, that I, I am called by God to submit. No, ultimately, your submission is to the Lord. There is a godly submission, and there is an abusive submission, and we're not talking about abusive submission. As the man submits himself to Christ and is the spiritual leader of his home, the husband, so wives are to submit to their husbands knowing that ultimately that is submission to the Lord. And then that even the third relationship that Paul mentions, Christ or God the Son and God the Father, there is submission there. It is not that God the Son is, is any uh, less of value than God the Father. They are both co-equal, we know. But yet in the plan of redemption, Christ submits and goes as the Father sends. And we see all through the Gospels that Jesus does the will of the Father and He does it perfectly. We even see an example of godly submission in the life of Christ. So, as Paul addresses first this theological concept in verse 3, it is only as he touches on the theology of relationships that then he gets to the practical issue that the church was struggling with. In verses 4 to 6. And we see in those verses, as we discussed last week, that we are to reflect God's relational design. In verse 4, every man who prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. That word head there has a kind of a double meaning. We're dealing with head coverings and the physical head that in, in the culture of the first century, men would and priests in pagan religions that were men would cover their heads to pray, to worship the, their false gods. In the first century, a woman who did not have her head covered would many times be pictured as an unfaithful wife. One who is promiscuous. One individual said it was, could even be the equivalent of a woman refusing to wear her wedding ring in public. It was a sign of purity and submission. And Paul says that if a man is going to cover his head while he is praying or prophesying in the local church gathering, dishonors his head. Who is his head? It's not just himself. 
But according to those three relationships, who is the man's head? It's Christ. He's dishonoring Christ. And the woman who, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who is her head? In the context, it is her husband. It says it's actually the same as if her head were not shaven. And then verse 6, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Again, in the first century, for a woman to shave her head, it would be a sign of disgrace. It would be a sign that uh, that, that woman was unfaithful. An indicator of adultery, an indicator of public shame. It, it, it was not a sign of being cool or a sign of style in the first century for a woman to have her head shaved. Paul says, if you would not even think of this, what you are portraying in your actions with the head coverings, when you refuse to do that, it is the same. You are bringing shame to your head just as if you were shamed by shaving your head. And today we're going to continue to look at the truths that Paul gives regarding men and women. And one of the reasons that this passage is difficult is because Paul is dealing both with eternal theological truths... And what we will also see are cultural norms. And we are going to talk about um, how we are to see both of these facets. Theological, universal truths that do not change with time. And then cultural signs and symbols of those theological truths. So we're going to see once again this morning the key principle of this entire book that we are to cling to what truly matters. And it really does truly matter that we as men and women see the roles that God has designed for us to flourish. And that we live according to God's grand design. Because it is there that we see and live according to God's purposes. So let's pray, and we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we are going to get to the second key truth regarding God's design for men and women. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for giving us the opportunity to come together Lord, thank you for um, just allowing myself, our family, to be back with our church family after struggling with illness. Lord, I pray for those who are, 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 are ill right now. We think of, as Mike prayed, of Fanny, who uh, the doctors are trying to find out what was the source of this internal bleeding. And, and uh, Lord, I just pray for her, Lord. She's our, our, our oldest church member. And Lord, what a sweet spirit she has. What a servant's heart she has. And Lord, we just pray that you'd give the doctors wisdom, that if there's any issues that need to be treated, that they would do so, that you would just uh, uh, keep Fanny in good spirits. Lord, we pray for um, others, as, as uh, there are several others who are struggling with COVID and various illnesses, that you would uh, bring healing Lord, bring refreshment to those who are traveling, those who are away. Lord, I just ask that you would work in our lives and our hearts this morning. Father, would you bring us to repentance? Would you bring us to renewed trust, faith, hope, joy in you? Lord, we just pray all of this in Jesus' name, who is our head, the head of the local church. Amen. Number two, we've already seen that truth number one regarding men and women, God has designed distinct roles for men and women. Number two, men and women are both 
to bring glory to God. We see this in verses 7 to 12. And Paul here is going to lay out an, uh, uh, what we would say an argument, not an argument in the sense of Paul is arguing, but his reasoning, his, his theological teaching that goes all the way back to creation. Many people say, well, um, to say that you have man and, 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 and then a woman or the wife submits to her husband, man, those are dated truths. Well, Paul says, no, these are not dated truths. This goes all the way back to God's design in Genesis 1 and 2. And we're going to look at that, and, and, and I'm just going to read verses 7 to 10, and we'll probably take a deep breath and be like, whoa, that's kind of confusing. What's Paul talking about? And then we're going to unpack it. Let's look at verse 7. For, so uh, Paul is continuing what he is saying in these previous verses, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Now let's pause right there. He's already mentioned in verse 4 that a man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. He's talking here about a a cultural truth that, man, this this is presenting the wrong picture. And what is happening in the local church compared to what is happening in pagan religions and in the culture of the day for a man to do this? Now in verse 7, he again is saying that a man should not cover his head, and he's bringing this not in the cultural realm, but in the theological realm of God's uh, declared and designed truth. For a man ought not to cover his head. Why? Since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Wow. Anybody want to get up and give an explanation of that? (laughs) And sometimes, God's Word, it does require work to dig in and to understand some of these things. And there are disagreements about this this passage. And and we're not going to know God's Word um, uh, perfectly until uh, the Bible says that uh, He who is perfect comes. That's Jesus. Praise God that, that God's Word is beyond our understanding because it shows the infinite mind of God Himself. And even though a passage is difficult, that should not intimidate us. That should just say, God, we are dedicating our life to understand Your Word and we need Your Spirit to understand Your Word. So, Lord, would You help me to enjoy this lifelong endeavor? But we're going to look at this passage this morning, and we're going to unpack some of it. We see in verses 7 to 10 that there is a glory in God's creation pattern. There is glory in God's creation pattern. The first aspect of glory that Paul shows us is, number one, man brings glory to God. Man brings God glory. How does man bring God glory? Well, look, verse 7 says, A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Those two, key, those two words are key in verse 7. Image and glory. What we see here is Paul presents man as the image of God. Now this takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. If you would, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at this. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Most of you are familiar with this verse. Then God said, let us make man 
in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So just a few notes here. We first of all see that that, that man or mankind has been created in the image of God. That word man there is, in the Hebrew, it's the word Adam. It, it, uh, of course, we know Adam is the first man, but, but even broader than simply Adam, that word Adam means mankind. Let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness. So there's a difference between, between animals, between um, nature, between uh, everything else that God has created after their kind, it says uh, at the end of, of these descriptions of days in Genesis 1. There's a difference between everything else and mankind. Because mankind alone has been created in the image of God, has been created to represent God, has been created to have a relationship with God. Both man and woman have been created in the image of God. Now in 1 Corinthians 7 or 11 verse 7, Paul is highlighting the fact that man has been created in the image and glory of God. He is not saying woman has not been created in the image and glory of God. But he is highlighting man for a reason. And that brings us also to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 1, you have um, the, the days of creation. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have um, God, uh, uh, Moses describes... God created this on the first day, created this on the second day. He gets to day six with man, and he takes some extra time to highlight the importance of the creation of mankind. And then you get to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, he sort of starts over, and he, and he fills in the gaps. He supplements, uh, Moses supplements what he said in, in Genesis 1, to fill in the gaps to highlight the importance of God's creation of man and woman. It's almost like when you have uh, stereo speakers, and, and this illustration is not original with me, but you have a left speaker and a right speaker. And you have different sounds coming out of the one speaker with the other. Now, I've never been able to fully enjoy that because ever since I was born, I could only hear uh, out of one ear. The other ear uh, just picks up a little bit of sound. So, so I'm, not, I'm not living in stereo. I'm li living in mono. But Genesis 1 and 2 is like stereo. You get the creation account from one perspective, and then you also get it from another perspective. And we see more about mankind being created in the image of God. You see, as, as Paul uses in 1 Corinthians the word image and glory, he is bringing to our mind both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because not only do we see man as the image of God, but we see man as the bearer of God's glory. How does mankind bring glory to God? It's in a functional role. In what they do as God's representatives and image bearers. And we see from Genesis 2 that while both man and woman, both Adam and Eve, functionally bring glory to God, God has assigned to Adam a specific leadership role in that being accomplished. So for instance, we see in chapter 2, we see that uh, uh, in verse 5 that there's an, kind of an introduction into the creation of Adam. There was no bush of the field. Uh, there was no small plants. 
Um, the, uh, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. Um, and, and then verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then we read the Lord God planted a, a garden in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. So at this point in creation, uh, there is only man, Adam. And then we jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So Genesis 1 verse 26 that we read, God gives Adam and Eve the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In other words, they were to be obedient to God and they were to fill the earth with other image bearers that also brought God glory. You, needed both, you need both man and woman to do that, right? You can't fill the earth with just a man or just a woman. But then we see highlighted in Genesis 2 that Adam was given very specific leadership roles in all of this happening. God puts Adam in the garden before Eve was ever created, and he says, Adam, as my representative, you are to work to cultivate my creation, and you are to guard this garden. We read that it was in the garden where God walked with man. God's glory physically and tangibly dwelt specifically in the garden as God dwelt with man. And the word there, keep, is that he was to guard the garden from any unclean thing entering into it. Kind of reminds you of the tabernacle and then later the temple, doesn't it? That's good, it's supposed to. Where God's glory dwelt. In fact, the words work and keep in Genesis 2.15, are the same exact words that describe the priest's temple duties. They were to work in the temple and to keep, to guard it from any unclean thing entering God's presence. This role was given specifically to Adam. Adam was to perfectly represent God as his vice ruler to be obedient to him and to fulfill the mandate that God had given. To showcase his glory, to keep any unclean thing out as they were to populate the earth with God's image bearers. So as we temper we're going to jump back to Genesis, but as we, as we go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Hopefully this adds a little bit more of a context to what Paul is saying here about man being in the image and glory of God. So man is to bring God glory. And for man in this first century context to, to wear a head covering would distort the creation design that God had given. Now let's keep reading in verse 7. But, at the end, woman is the glory of man. Now I know that causes us to cringe a little bit after being in the culture that we are living in where um, we hear so much... Um, about men and women. But we have to let God's Word be our guide, number one, and we also need to properly understand this passage, number two. But what we see in verses, the last part of verse 7 to verse 9 is Paul says the woman brings man glory. The woman brings man glory. Now what is Paul talking about? The woman is the glory of man. 
Once again, we have to keep in mind the context of what Paul is talking about. Genesis 1 and 2. What Paul is highlighting here is that there is a creation order of the man and the woman. You say, well, Pastor Adam, how uh, how do you know that? Well, you know it from the text. The text is to drive our understanding. That's what we keep trying to repeat in Ethiopia as we were teaching uh, the pastors about interpreting Scripture because one of the main temptations that the leaders uh, told us is for, uh, number one, for different pastors to simply plagiarize what other pastors have, have said, and number two, to just come up with your own ideas and not get what you're saying from Scripture. Well, look at verse 8. Why is woman the glory of man? Well, verse 8 gives us the answer. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That's creation order. So let's take a moment and let's jump back into Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And notice verse 23, because this is going to be key. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We see here that woman was made from man in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 11. You see, woman being created from man reflects who he is. Man was created first, Genesis 2-7, and the description is entirely different. God takes dirt, He shapes it, He molds it, He forms it, and then He breathes into the nostrils He has just formed the breath of life. There was no human before Adam. And then what we read in Genesis 2 is that he, God does the first surgery in the Bible. So, you know, as we go through our medical issues, you know, we can take comfort that God is the great surgeon. That God can guide the hands of our physicians. He does a surgery and He removes a rib from Adam's side. And with that rib, He creates woman. Woman, as, as according to the creation narrative, just as Adam has a response, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. First of all, note the word for man or Adam is Adam. You know what the, the word for woman is? Adamah. They're exactly the same except for one consonant and one vowel. Even the word itself, Adam, Adamah, shows that man and woman are to be seen together. And we're going to get to that. And Adam's attitude in seeing the woman is not disparaging. Huh. Now I got somebody to boss around. Ah, now I got somebody to do my bidding to get the uh, uh, whatever the equivalent back then of the remote controller is for me. To make my fruit dinner. <laughs> we saw what that what happened with that. The fruit dinner, Genesis three. Okay, okay. <laughs> Tough crowd today. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, Adam's response is one of awe 
and wonder. That as Adam sees the Adamah, it is a reflection of himself. At last, there is someone who is just like me. That's the sense that we have when, we, when Paul says the woman is the glory of man. That a woman is an extension of man. That yes, God has given different roles to man and women. Different functions uh, between a husband and a wife. But yet they are extensions of one another. And the woman brings glory to the man in the sense that in God's creative design, she was taken from man, and, and here comes a helpmeet. I like what, how one person, or two individuals put it. I have this on the overhead. I have a couple statements on the overhead. Um, they say, how does this relate to one being the glory of the other? The artist's work brings honor and glory to the artist. How many artists do we have here today? Okay, not a lot, all right. Well, it says, while both men and women were created by God, according to Genesis 2, the man played a role in the making of the woman, but the woman played no role in the making of the man. She was not around when the man was made. And he can in no way be considered a reflection of her nature or character. We go to the next slide. She, on the other hand, was not simply made after the man, but the man was the raw material which, with, from which she was made. One could say that she is the glory of the man and that she is a reflection of the quality of the materials used. One other statement that I think is really well and puts this into perspective and puts Adam's response of awe and wonder into the right perspective. Um, the, the classic theologian and commentator Matthew Henry, many of you know who he is, he says, the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that an awesome word picture of woman being created out of the rib, out of the side of man? That is the way, men, that we are to view and to treat our wives. Man, wouldn't submission, biblical submission, be a lot easier if that is the heart attitude of men? I hope we can see from this that the teaching of Scripture is not some chauvinistic male agenda like the Bible can often get accused of. But let's keep reading in 1 Corinthians 11 if you flip back there. Why is woman the glory of man? Well, we see in verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. But then verse 9, Paul gives another reason. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, do you all want to give a, a, a cultural chuckle here? as to how this verse could be misconstrued. <laughs> Men, please do not use this in the next argument that you have with your wives and say, woman, you were made for me. I was not made for you. <laughs> how sad of an attitude to have. But we do see in verse 9, it says the second reason here that a woman brings man glory. Woman was created for man. But, but the, big, the big thing we need to answer is, is what does it mean man was, woman was made for man? We probably should start with what it does not mean. It does not mean that woman was created for the selfish whims of man. 
A wife was not created for the selfish agenda, whim of her husband. Also, woman was not created for man in the sense of a man's dictatorial dominance over a woman. Well, because I said so. Don't ask questions. Unfortunately, I think in some of the history of Christianity, um, there's been a, an abuse of submission language that many times women, uh, even when their husbands are acting ungodly, feel that, well, I just need to submit. And, 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 and it becomes a form of oppression and abuse that, that, yes, a wife does need to submit, but it needs to be as to the Lord. There are times when, when there is unrepentant sin going on in the home that it is completely biblical for a wife to go to uh, spiritual uh, uh, authority or to pastors, to church leadership and say, we need help in our home. And there's a cycle of unrepentance and things are just getting out of hand. And we need help. And that needs to be handled by those involved in a careful and loving and biblical way. But biblical submission has been abused in the past, but that does not negate the truth. Or I should say submission has been abused in the past. But that does not negate the truth that submission is biblical. So we've taken a look at what woman being created for man does not mean. What does it mean? When the Bible says, again, woman was created for man, what is Paul's context he's speaking in? Genesis 1 and 2. So once again, we need to go to Genesis 1 and 2 for answers. When we see Genesis 2, 18 and what is described, we see how woman was created for man. Verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a, what's that word? A helper fit for him. Scripture interprets Scripture. So hopefully, I'm helping you out a little bit in your study of Scripture by even going over these principles, dealing with a passage of head coverings nonetheless. You look to Scripture to answer your questions regarding Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's why we need to be in Scripture to know what Scripture says. It doesn't mean that we don't need the help of one another, but when we go to the help of one another, whether it's a pastor or whether it's a trusted spiritual friend, Hopefully, they answer your questions by turning you to Scripture. See that cycle, that pattern? Scripture. A helper fit for him. Genesis 2.18. That word helper does not have the idea of bench player. You know, like a, like a basketball team, you got your five starters, they're the best. Your bench players are kind of helpers, right? Your, your good players get tired and need a break, and what do you do? Let's send in the helpers. Let's send in the second string. That's usually where I was on the basketball team, second string. Uh, and regardless of how frustrating that would be, they did help the starters, right? But that's not, what the, the con, that's not what this word helper means. Second string, second best, second rate. In fact, when you look at this word helper in the Old Testament, it's, a, it's actually a word that's often used of military assistance. That, that different nations would come and be a help. 
This word is used of God himself as Israel's helper. We're not going to say God is second rate, are we? We're not going to say that somehow man didn't really need God, but it was a nice addition, or, or Israel didn't really need God, but it was a nice addition that he decided to come along. Absolutely not. You see, God created woman as a helper for Adam to help him with, with what? To help him carry out the mission of God's design for his image bearers. Remember Genesis 1.26. Male and female he created them. To fill the earth with image bearers that would perfectly bring glory to God and fill the earth with, with God's glory as those image bearers were obedient to him. Woman was a helper to man to carry out God's creation intent. Both male and female are needed. Men can't do it alone. In a local church, if you had only a group of men and you took all of the women out, what a disaster that would be. And similarly, if you had a church full of just women with no men, that too would be greatly lacking because God has created men and women to be together. So woman was created for man in the sense of bringing the fullness of God's glory to be displayed in this earth. And man, in God's goodness, you know, Ephesians 3, it says that, 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 that God is so good that he gives abundantly above all that we ask or think. And when we look, there are, there are so many more uh, glories and, and, and wonderful gifts and, and, and God creating men and women. To, to be married, to enjoy companionship, to be friends, to enjoy companionship. All so many extra benefits, but we see what Paul is getting at is the glory of God, that man, the mandate that God had given Adam, Adam needed Eve. So, if we are going to see that men and women are to bring glory to God, we have to go back to creation and see the glory in creation, in God's creation design, in God's creation pattern. Man brings glory to God. The woman brings man glory. Whoever has the timer, I'm almost done. I think that was Mike letting me know he needed to get back to the campsite. We also see in verse 10 the expression of God's creation intent. Here Paul gets back from the theological, he gets to the, the, the cultural, what's going on in the church. He says that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now before we get to that last phrase there, because of the angels, that's a really interesting phrase, but we see that Paul is both going backwards as to what he just said, and he's going forward uh, to uh, this, this idea of the angels, once again talking about women wearing head coverings. Now there's a parallel idea here in Paul's thought. Paul kind of starts this section talking about the order of creation in verse 7 when he says a man ought not to cover his head. And then he, he explains based on creation. And, and you, know, you know, who knows? You know, maybe that's why being bald is more biblical. I'm not covering my head one iota. <laughs> and neither is Gary. He just looked down and the glare just struck me. 
<laughs> but but then, then as Paul closes out this, this thought talking specifically on Genesis 1 and 2, he parallels what he said about men not wearing head coverings to then women in verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That, 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 word, that, that English phrase, symbol of authority, literally that word symbol is not in the Greek. The, Greek is, uh, the English is providing that to help us understand uh, what the Greek is saying. Literally, it's the woman is to have authority on or over her head. What this, what this is talking about in verse 10, about a, a symbol of authority or having authority on the woman's head, is that this head covering is a sign of the creation, God-ordained authority that God has made. In other words, the woman, by wearing a veil is actually amplifying her dignity by acknowledging and living according to God's creation design. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. This symbol of authority is not to diminish woman or make her second rate. But again, in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the, the veil was to amplify her God-given role that He has placed upon her. It was to be a mark of dignity, a mark of respect, a mark of exaltation, not demotion. And then Paul says, he kind of uh, not only speaks about what he just said in verses 7, 8, and 9, but then he says also they are to have this symbol of authority because of the angels. Now, there's a lot of, of uh, different um, conversations as to what exactly that phrase means. The word angels can mean messengers in the New Testament. In other words, like human messengers. Um, it, it, it can mean that, but the word angels also means what we think of with angels, um, heavenly angels. So why in the world would a veil, a covering, be a symbol of a woman's authority? Why would they need to wear that because of the angels? Well, we're not going to completely answer that question because it's not it's not crucial to our text, and it is up for conversation. But again, Scripture interprets Scripture, and the context of Scripture helps us understand what Scripture is talking about. It is interesting that angels are mentioned in Psalm, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm chapter 8, dealing with creation. Psalm chapter 8 O Lord, you're familiar with it, many of you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and your avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And notice verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Isn't it interesting that angels are mentioned in Psalm 8? You have made mankind a little lower than the angels, but yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. I think it very well could be that Paul had Psalm 8 in his mind when he's talking about a head covering 
in the context of angels that that covering was actually a symbol of the crown, that you have crowned him with glory, that just as a man has been given a role in creation of glory, so woman in her role glorifies God as well. It's also interesting just to consider how involved angels are in the affairs of God and man. For instance, 1 Peter 1.12, talking about God's glorious plan of salvation, hidden in the past, revealed in the present through Christ. These are things that angels long to look into. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 21, Paul to Timothy says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. I think we both have a, a, a picture of creation from Psalm 8 that we've been made a little bit lower than the angels, yet we have been crowned with glory, with splendor, with honor. And we also have a testimony before the heavenly angels, just as Paul charges Timothy before Jesus, before God the Father, and before the elect angels, that we are to follow God in this heavenly among these heavenly witnesses. So we're going to close this morning right here at the end of verse 10, but I want to just take a second to put some of this together. And we're going to, we're going to complete it um, next week before we transition for a couple weeks to have some guest speakers and to hear from our Staten Island team. How at this point can we put together everything that Paul has just said. We're going to again go into more depth into this, and this will kind of maybe be a, a precursor into as we talk about head coverings next week. But I like what Andy Nacelli says. He says, because Paul argues from creation, the principle that husbands and wives have different roles transcends cultures. In this passage, Paul applies this principle to first century Christians wearing head coverings in a Greco-Roman context. So what we see here, because Paul goes back to creation to talk about men and women, what the Bible teaches about the roles of men and women, of husbands and wives. It, it's not just a passing fad that, well, that was something for that time period, but it's no longer applicable today. No, if that were the case, Paul wouldn't be arguing from creation. Because creation shows what God's intent was. Some people even say, well, different roles between men and women, that was kind of constructed after the fall because of sin. And that's why, you know, as we're saved, we, we look back to pre-fall because sin doesn't have the dominance over us. And God made different roles for men and women after the fall. Well, we see from Genesis 1 and 2 that that's before we ever get to Genesis 3. No doubt. Sin coming into the world distorted the roles. Now there would be friction. But God's role, roles for men and women, for husbands and wives, transcend culture. And we're going to see more next week how that ties into such a cultural issue such as head covering. But as we close this morning, what we have to keep in mind is that we must cling to what truly matters. Men, you have been given a glorious calling by God to lead your families, to lead your homes. You may say, Pastor Adam, I'm not married. You have been given a glorious calling to follow God in, perfect, or, or, in, in complete obedience. Women, you have been given a calling by God that you are given an important role to come alongside your husband if you're married. 
to walk alongside so that as a couple and as a family, not you can just have a nice home and you can have a pleasant life and you can raise pleasant children, but that you are on mission for God together. And wife, you are equipping your husband to take the needed lead that he has, and that involves rebuking your husband in a godly way where he is failing to step up. And that the husband's responsibility in being a servant leader is to take that correction lovingly and to discern the truth of that. You may say, Pastor Adam, what if I'm a woman and I'm not married today? We know that the picture of marriage, uh, marriage is not an end to itself. The picture of marriage points us to Christ's relationship with his church. You are not going to live a fulfilled life by suddenly getting married one day. You're going to see that, yes, you are now in a different status, but you have the same exact problems you had before marriage. God has equipped you, if you are a single woman, with specific gifts from God, as we will read in chapter 12, and you are to follow God, and you are to be on mission for God, and you are to be complementing in your way that God has designed you, the mission that He has given you as an individual, and He has given His church corporately. We must cling to what truly matters. <music> 